<clears throat> it will help us to know what to do and what not to do with the Beatitudes if we can discover what Jesus himself was doing with them. That should be the key to understanding them. For after all, they are his Beatitudes, not ours, to make of them what we will. And since great teachers and leaders always have a coherent message that they develop in an orderly way, we should assume that his teaching in the Beatitudes is a clarification or a development of his primary theme in this talk and in his life, the availability of the kingdom of the heavens. Welcome to the Belfast Podcast. I'm your host, Luke Byler. And this week, Daniel and I continue talking about the divine conspiracy. We're moving on to chapter four. This is Willard's discussion of the Beatitudes. And his interpretation, until I read it, was one that I had never heard before. And so stick around for that. That's what we're going to discuss in this first episode is Willard's interpretation, some of the implications of how he takes the Beatitudes. And then next week, we're going to talk about a specific inversion that he is calling upon with what to do with those who are rich. So stay tuned for that next week. As always, thank you guys so much for listening, and we'll see you in the next one. We are continuing our discussion of the divine conspiracy. We are now in chapter four. Um, chapters one through three are really Willard's prelude to a lot of the reason that he wrote the book. Being our flying upside down, the loss of morals connected to life and our culture. With that then being the moralization of the gospel, the gospels of sin management, and chapter three, dealing with the reality he sees Jesus as believing, and I think the biblical reality of our God-bathed world. And now we move on to the meat of the book as he starts to break down the Sermon on the Mount for us. So if it hasn't been clear before and other things that I've said, um, just know that most of this book is Willard's dissertation on the Sermon on the Mount. So if you want biblical passages or a biblical set to read as you read the Divine Conspiracy, let it be the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, best place to start with any, well, um, a beginning is the time to get the balances correct, as every sister of the Bene Gesserit knows. So to begin your study of the Sermon on the Mount, let us start in the Beatitudes. So, Daniel, um, actually, yeah, do you want to go ahead and read the Beatitudes for us? Yeah, so let me uh, I'll share my screen. I have them pulled up here. Is that coming through all right? <clears throat> yes, it is. All right, so the start of the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, Matthew chapter 5. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, the disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were of old or who were before you. All right. So something that's interesting to point out in in reading the Beatitudes, it's something, the central question, you could say, of this chapter in Willard is which, which life is the good life in Jesus' estimation? What makes a good life? Is the good life only available to certain people or is it available to everyone? The life of heaven, you could say. And then a subset of that question, which is something we'll get to more next week, but who is really a good person? And so with these questions in mind, what happens to a lot of people is that we read the list of the Beatitudes and think that is a desirable state to be in. Those conditions, because they come with blessing from God, are something to strive for. Shocker. Willard thinks you're wrong. Um, so uh, after he poses the question of, you know, how do, how is this read? How do we read it? What does it mean for for us, what's the good life? He goes into why he thinks that this is not, not the case. So he says, let me pull it over here. He says this. The Beatitudes of Jesus drive home his answer to this question. What is the good life? Who is it available to? What makes a good person? They are among the literary and religious treasures of the human race, along with the Ten Commandments, the 23rd Psalm, and the Lord's Prayer, and a very few other passages from the Bible. They are acknowledged by almost everyone to be among the highest expressions of religious insight. We can savor them, affirm them, meditate upon them, and engrave them on plaques and hang on our walls. But the major question remains, how are we to live in response to them? This is not an idle question. Misunderstanding of the blesseds given by Jesus in Matthew 5 and Luke 6 have caused much pain and confusion down through the ages and continue to do so today. Strangely enough, his blesseds have not until have not uniformly been a blessing for many they proved to be nothing less than pretty poison. Once after I spoke on the Beatitudes, a lady approached me expressing great relief at what she had just heard. We'll get to his interpretation of them 
near the end here. She told me her son had dropped in had dropped his Christian identification and left the church because of the Beatitudes. He was a strong, intelligent man who had made the military his profession. As often happens, he had been told that the Beatitudes, with its list of the poor, the sad, the weak, and the mild, were a picture of the ideal Christian. He explained to his mother very simply, that's not me, I can never be like that. Certainly this man was not perfect as he stood and could have made several changes for the better, but is that what we're supposed to do with the Beatitudes? Be like that? Frankly, most people think so. I know I have for a long time. But they could hardly be more mistaken. More common than such outright rejection of Christianity so understood is a consistent burden of guilt consciously borne for not being or not wanting to be on the list of the supposedly God-preferred. This kind of guilt also feeds a morbid streak a morbid streak that unfortunately possessed into historical Christianity and has greatly weakened its force for good in history and in individual lives. On the other hand, pride often visibly swells in those who think of themselves as conforming to the blesseds. So Willard argues, it's not a state to which you should aspire to be. It is an identification that the kingdom is available to anyone. Yeah, I'll just read that next paragraph real quick. Because okay. uh, I think that's where he makes that, that transition. <clears throat> it will help us to know what to do and what not to do with the Beatitudes if we can discover what Jesus himself was doing with them. That should be the key to understanding them. For after all, they are his beatitudes, not ours, to make of them what we will. And so we can't interpret them with our truth to power. Is that what you're saying? Or our truth to poverty. Or that. We'll get into that later. That was good foreshadowing. And since great teachers and leaders always have a coherent message that they develop in an orderly way, we should assume that his teaching in the Beatitudes is a clarification or a development of his primary theme in this talk and in his life, the availability of the kingdom of the heavens. And so his follow-up question is how then do they develop the theme, which is the subject of basically the rest of the book. Um, but yes, it's about the availability of the kingdom of the heavens it's not about whether or not you are or in spirit meaning you'll be blessed yes so real quick i wanted to talk about one thing uh, before we continued mm -hmm. <clears throat> and that is um the <sighs> definition of blessing um, so the bible project has a really good episode on this in their genesis series um i think it's called with great blessing comes great responsibility uh, which is kind of funny. Um, I mean, it's not wrong. No, no, it's not at all. Um, fact, I, think I think it's it, a great way to not, talk about not, it. Not to be... I think to be honest, both of us sit in that position. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So. Well, I think with the blessing of time 
that we have both been able to dedicate to studying. Yes. The Bible. That's, that's what I mean. We're yeah, yeah. yeah. Not everyone's in our position. Yes. And so I think one of the reasons why I feel compelled to do this podcast is because I feel a responsibility with the studying that I've done to say something and to teach something and to bring something to other people that will hopefully help them as I have been helped by Mm -hmm. this time. Um, And so, yeah, with great blessing comes great responsibility. But in that episode, he uses, um, I believe it's Dr. Jeff Anderson's definition of blessing. Um, He says, to bless something is to wish or effect upon that thing, flourishing, abundance, multiplication, growth, and life. I mean, you can think of this even in the blessings in the Old Testament, given from, say, fathers to sons. Yep. Or Abraham to, or Melchizedek to Abraham. Yep. I'm in a class on Hebrews right now. We won't get into it. So thinking of that as our paradigm, let's just go back to the Beatitudes real quick, and I'll read a couple of them. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Okay, so you're poor in spirit, meaning you don't have much maybe like religious fervor or religious knowledge or ability, but yours is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they will inherit the earth. Okay, so you're starting at this really low place, but yours is going to become this Mm. not really low Mm -hmm. place. And Mm -hmm. so you can see this, Jesus is saying, and we'll get into this in a second, I might be um, overreaching our outline here, but Jesus is saying that not you are blessed because, and I'll just read, I think this this one line makes this super clear, not that you are blessed because you are in this poor state. Mm -hmm. You are blessed because you will not necessarily be called to stay there. Mm. Let's like verse four, I think makes this most explicit. Although verse three really does too. Like I just highlighted with the blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You can't have the kingdom of heaven, this spiritual reality that exists here on earth without growing in spirit spirit. and remain poor in spirit, right? Those two things are oxymoronic. And there are a lot of people who would say, no, that's exactly the point. Jesus is the last shall be first. The first shall be last. Humble, lowly. Yeah. I think also think that's a misreading of poor in spirit, by the way, but saying being it saying that they, that's someone who's humble and lowly. And yes. Um, And we'll, I think we'll touch on that verse explicitly in a little bit. Mm -hmm. Um, so I'll save that for then. But suffice it to say that I think, um, well, well, I'll read verse four. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Mm-hmm. You were comforted in your mourning. Who's doing the comforting? Maybe it's a friend. Maybe it's family. Maybe it's the Holy Spirit. Maybe it's Jesus. But you are blessed, not because you are mourning. It literally says, for they will be comforted, Mm -hmm. right? That's why you're blessed, not because you mourn. And the Beatitudes are this very systematic, repetitive, yeah. And so you can track that same formula onto all of them, 
right? Blessed are you because of this in spite of the thing in your life that's not the way it should be. Mm. And that really is, I think, the, um, the biggest thing. So I want to read a section from page uh, 121. I'll get you the, uh, the explicit. Um, oh, yes, yeah, right before the section dealing with the soul in Got death. It. Okay. So when you get it on the screen. There we go. Got it. Awesome. So it's just this last paragraph. The Beatitudes simply cannot be good news if they are understood as a set of how-tos for achieving blessedness. They would then only amount to a new legalism. This, I think, is a, a fundamental concept to grasp, because not only does it not make sense, but it also imposes a new legalistic framework. They would not serve to throw open the kingdom anything but they would impose a new brand of pharisaism a new way of closing the door as well as some very gratifying new possibilities for the human engineering of righteousness mm. human engineering of righteousness so let's just think right sin now. management sin management about all of the ways that the beatitudes that we've heard or that in the section that you read in pretty poison right this guy who leaves the faith because, because I can't be that. I can't be that. Because we've put them up as a new form of human engineered righteousness. You meet the standard of poor in spirit. You meet the standard of the mourner. You do those things because if you don't, you're not a good Christian. And I think that is an awful misunderstanding of what it means to be a Christian and a very poor understanding of the Beatitudes. Anything to add there? Uh, I think this could branch off. I don't want this to branch off, but just food for thought. Um, I think a lot of this can branch off into some problems we have with characterizing Jesus as just a nice guy. Yeah, we shouldn't, we shouldn't branch off. And I don't even know if I would, I'm necessarily prepared for a conversation like that, though I could probably spitball. But yeah, maybe we should get back to that. As like, as like the mm -hmm. state, this is something, put it in the notes for another episode. Um, the preferable state of the Christian is someone who's harmless. Yeah, so I was going to say, let's get back to that concept when we talk about pacifism and using Lewis, way to right. worry, all of that stuff. So we'll bookmark that for later, everyone. Um, and I just kind of showed our hand a little bit uh, as to what's coming. That's fine. Anyway. Um, I mean, we'll definitely <laughs> get into it Um I think in our next book too. So probably that makes a little sense bit. actually. Um, okay. So next section that I want to read is going back a little bit to page 116 um, okay. under the section spiritual zeros, but I'm going to be at the end of that section, the last two to three paragraphs. Gotcha. <clears throat> All right. 
So yeah, that last paragraph on that page. Jesus did not say, blessed are the poor in spirit because they are poor in spirit. He did not think, what a fine thing it is to be destitute of every spiritual attainment or quality. It makes people worthy of the kingdom. And we steal away the much more profound meaning of his teachings about the availability of the kingdom by replacing the state of by replacing the state of spiritual impoverishment in no way good in itself with some supposedly praiseworthy state of mind or attitude that qualifies us for the kingdom. Let's read that sentence again. And we, and steal, we away. steal away the much more profound meaning of his teaching about the availability of the kingdom by replacing the state of spiritual impoverishment in no way good in itself with some supposedly praiseworthy state of mind or attitude that qualifies us for the kingdom. There's your quote for next week. <laughs> yeah, you're not wrong. I can't wait till... Uh... Yeah, that'll be good. So continuing on the next page. In so doing, we merely substitute another banal legalism for an ecstatic, for the ecstatic pronouncement of the gospel. Those poor in spirit are called blessed by Jesus, not because they are in a meritorious condition, not because the way they are merits their blessedness or mm -hmm. gives them in any mm -hmm. way, shape, or form mm -hmm. blessedness continuing the quote, but because precisely in spite of and in the midst of every so deplorable condition, the rule of the heavens has moved redemptively upon and through them by the grace of Christ. Mm. Mm. And this is one of the, the aspects, I think, of grace alone theology that is very helpful. And that we somehow miss, right? We want to say, oh, grace alone, grace alone, no works at all. We had a whole episode diving deep, or probably several, diving deep into our thoughts based on a paper I wrote on that topic. All of that still stands. But I do think it's worth noting that we are allowed into the kingdom in spite of our being poor in spirit, in spite of us being in a state of mourning, in spite of us being gentle and constantly being run over by others. It's, it's because, not, not because we are these states, but because we because the grace of Jesus reaches us in these lowly states and calls us out of them. We can choose, and I will stand firm on this, like I did in that episode, we can choose whether or not we will accept that. Mm -hmm. Will we live in the trust of Jesus as king? But it's not about a state that we are in before that. That's not what it is at all. So a, a note that I wrote, um, and I think I, I made this bold because I wanted to read it. A good contextual translation of the Beatitudes would be 
Blessed are those who we think are beyond the possibility of being blessed. Mm. And it is directly because of Jesus' presence with them that they are blessed. Mm-hmm. As, as we've been having this conversation, this kept ringing in my head. And you can tell me, tell me what you think of this here in a minute. It might be something that you want to flip soon, which I think might provide some good context. <clears throat> this is screw tape. And so, so let's say this. I, in light of this Beatitudes as not the desirable state being so contrary to what we've grown up with, it oddly makes me judgmental of those that treat it as such. Um, and that's part of my own issues. Um, so I guess with, because as you've been talking, as we've been saying this, all the things we've said before about, you know, Holy Spirit being your, not being your key to interpret the Bible, the, like, that's what I see as like the, the poor in spirit mentality is like what I see as the part of the problem with the anti-intellectualism that has pervaded much of evangelicalism. Um, It's those kinds of things that I think are the consequence of taking these things in a certain way that they are. Now, that doesn't, again, to, to Willard and Jesus' point, that doesn't mean that the kingdom is less available to them than it is to me. I think that is what Jesus is poking at. And I think that's something that I struggle with. So I'll read this. This is letter two. My dear, my dear Wormwood, I note with grave displeasure that your patient has become a Christian. Do not indulge the hope that you will escape the usual penalties. Indeed, in your better moments, I trust you would hardly even wish to do so. In the meantime, we must take the best of this. We must make the best of the situation. There is no need to despair. Hundreds of these adult converts have been reclaimed after a brief sojourn in the enemy's camp and are now with us. All the habits of the patient, both mental and bodily, are still in our favor. One of our great allies at present is the church itself. Do not misunderstand me. I do not mean the church. As we see her spread out, spread out through all time and space and rooted in eternity, terrible as an army with banners, that, I confess, is a spectacle which makes our boldest temptations uneasy, but fortunately it is quite invisible to these humans. All your patient sees is the half-finished sham Gothic erections on the new building estates. When he goes inside, he sees the local grocer, with rather an oily expression on his face, 
bustling up to offer him one shiny little book containing a liturgy, which neither of them understands, and one shabby little book containing corrupt text of a number of religious lyrics, mostly bad, and in very small print. When he gets to his pew and looks around him, he sees just that selection of his neighbors, whom he has Hithro avoided. You want to lean pretty heavily on those neighbors. Make his mind fit to, and make his mind flit to and fro between an expression like the body of Christ and the actual faces in the next pew. It matters very little, of course, what kind of people the next pew really contains. You may know one of them to be a great warrior in the enemy's side, no matter. Your patient, thanks to our father below, is a fool. Provided that any of those neighbors sing out of tune or have boots that squeak or double chins or odd clothes, the patient will quietly, will quite easily believe that their religion must therefore be somehow ridiculous. At his present state, you see, he has an idea of Christians in his mind, which he supposes to be spiritual, but which, in fact, is largely pictorial. His mind is full of togas and sandals and armor and bare legs, and the mere fact that the other people in church wear modern clothes in a real, though of course an unconscious, are, is of course an unconscious difficulty to him. Never let it come to the surface. Never let him ask what he expects them to look like. Keep everything hazy in his mind now, and you will have all eternity where within to amuse yourself by producing in him the particular kind of clarity which hell affords. I think the phrase, it doesn't matter what how they actually are. It matters what he thinks of them. And so I, I just want to bring that up to say, I, I struggle with this the opposite of what Willard is talking about here. As someone who doesn't see like gentleness as a virtue or purent spiritness as a desirable state, uh, those that want to proclaim certain things uh, irritate me, and maybe rightfully so, but I guess I'm just warned. Let me not make. Let me not let that be a judgment on the actuality of that person's faith or the availability of the kingdom to such a person. I find the exact same struggle. <clears throat> um, part of the great responsibility that comes with the great blessing of being able to study as intently as we have is that because you know more, it makes it a lot more difficult to excuse the way things are that you don't think they should be, right? So popular misconceptions like this about the Beatitudes or other passages do genuinely bother me. And I think in part, that's a good thing, right? Because 
we should care about the authentic teaching of our holy text. But there have been, and I'm sure there will continue to be many, many times when my passion for getting it right gets in the way of loving people properly. Mm -hmm. And I've, there have been times in my past I've needed to repent from that. And I'm sure there will be times in my future. Um, that's a continuous struggle. So I guess blessed too are also those who know too much for their own good. Um, or maybe don't know enough for their own good, but think they know too much. Because we could also qualify in that camp, I'm sure, in many ways. Blessed are the intellectually arrogant, for they shall be humble. Yep. Yeah. And I, I pray that in all things we are, we both know enough to help each other and others along, and are also humble enough to help each other and others along, and be helped along. Um, it's a difficult tension.